Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the jellyfish by David H. Keller. That's Doctor David H. Keller to you. <laughs> Uh, first published in Weird Tales, January 1929. It has been revised uh, at least once. Um, or it could be, rather than revised, uh, that we are seeing the edited version in Weird Tales. Um, Farnsworth Wright, um, I think, was the editor at this time. Uh, yeah, he was. I'm just looking at the masthead. Um and he was known to trim things, <laughs> uh, edit things down a little bit. Um, not always for the better, um, but if you look at the pagination on this original, we've got the the title, we've got the author's name, there's a little, a very minimal editorial introduction, and then it uses every inch of the last page. So if you wanted to cut something and you're not the greatest editor in the planet, you could just cut off the story early. So there is an alternative ending, um, and there are some textual changes, but nothing making it radically different, just a few words here and there. So, for example, um, the word till in this story is changed to until in a later version. Um, more than once in the story, till is used. And uh, and then instead of um, solitary, it's changed to soul. So I would guess that David H. Keller, in in packaging it for a later collection, or whoever did that, uh, was using a slightly altered version than the one we're going to read from today. But uh, we will have that alternative ending available for uh, discussion at the end of. Our discussion, or uh, your reading so, of the story. So you're just you're suggesting that that the editor had the text that we was printed later. I think it's possible. I, it I can't guarantee it that. Down yes. For what we're about to see. Yeah. So, for uh -huh. example, Lovecraft uh, would often submit stories to Weird Tales. Um, one of the things he was very insistent about when he first uh, submitted his stories, he was kind of a weird guy, right? Um, he said, you may not change my stories at all. Uh, however, if you're willing to accept that, then please uh, can consider publishing them. He wasn't really in it for the commercial business of sales, right? He wanted, he wanted them to be published, but he didn't want editors interfering with his stories. Most other authors are not quite that picky, and they're willing to take the money because they're writing for money. Um, David H. Keller was uh, obviously um, published a lot in Weird Tales and elsewhere, but uh, we don't know how picky he was. Um, so <laughs> we know, we know, uh, and Baird, the original editor of Weird Tales, um, he he was like, "Oh yeah, that's fine. I I like your stuff, Lovecraft." But when Farnsworth Wright became editor after uh, Lovecraft rejected the editorial uh, editorship of Weird Tales, he said, I don't want to move to Chicago. <laughs> um, he, uh, he was not, he's not the biggest fan of weird fiction, so he, he was trying to just make a commercial product and, you know, make a good product, but, yeah, doesn't care so much about uh, sticking to what the artist wants <laughs> as much as we got to get this magazine out and we got to fill these pages and such so 
I, I, that'd be my supposition is that um, either it was changed subsequently and, you know, some textual changes, you know, author read, reads the story and says, I wouldn't do it that way anymore, right? This happens a bit. Or um, because of that extra paragraph just not being able to fit into the thing, he might have just cut it off early. This is not really a way to know. Yeah. You know, when you take away once upon a time from the beginning of a story, Mm -hmm. it may take a lot longer for you to realize that it's a fairy tale. Absolutely. And when you take away, and then he woke up from the end of the story, (laughs) uh, it may not strike you that it was, in fact, a fairy tale. Um, I think taking away the last paragraph is potentially crucial. Yeah. But why don't why don't we hear the story as its first readers saw it mm-hmm. in Weird Tales? And then after we discuss that, then perhaps we can take a look at that brief last paragraph and see Sounds what it does. Great. Okay? Mm-hmm. The jellyfish. All space is relative. There is no such thing as size. The telescope and the microscope have produced a deadly leveling of great and small, far and near. The only little thing is sin. The only great thing is fear. For the hundredth time, Professor Quirling repeated his statement, and for the hundredth time we listened to him in silence, afraid to enter into a controversy with him. It was not the fact that he knew more than we did that kept us quiet, but it was the haunting fear that filled us when we listened to him or watched him at his work. Working at an unsolved problem, he seemed a soul detached, a spirit separated from its earthly home, a being living only in the realm of thought, motionless. His body sat catatonic. His eyes stared, unwinking, till his mind, satisfied, condescended to return to its bone-bound cell. Then, in magnificent condescension, he would talk in long, limpid language of the things that he had considered and the conclusions that he had deduced. We, chosen scientists, university graduates, hailed him as our master and hated him for admitting the mastery. We hoped that some evil would befall him, and yet we realized that the success of the expedition depended upon his continued leadership. It was necessary for our future fame. We were struggling young men with all of life ahead of us, and if we failed in our first effort, there would be no other opportunities granted us. In a specially constructed yacht, a floating laboratory, we were south of Borneo, making a detailed study of the microscopic sea life. In deep sea nets, we gathered the tiny organisms, and then with microscope, photography, and the cinema, we observed them for the future instruction of the human race. There were hundreds of species, thousands of varieties, each to be identified, classified, described, studied, and photographed. We gathered in the morning, studied till midnight, and restlessly slept till morning. The only thing our solitary united emotion was a dreaded hatred of the professor. He knew how we felt and enjoyed taunting us. 
I am your leader because I willed it. It would whisper to us, the will to attain with me is synonymous with the accomplishment of my desire. I believe in myself, and through this belief, I succeed. There is nothing that a strong man cannot do if he wills to do it and believes in his strength. Our ideas of space, size, and time are but the fanciful dreams of children. I am 59 inches tall and with my clothes on weigh 110 pounds. If I desired, I could make myself a colossus and swallow the earth as a child swallows a pill if I willed it. I could fly through space like a comet or hang suspended in the ether like a morning star. My will is greater than any physical force because I believe in it. I have confidence in my own ability to do whatever I wish. So far, I have conducted myself like an average man because of my desire and not on account of my limitations. Man has a soul, and that ethereal force is greater than any law of nature that he ever thought of or of any that God ever created. He is purely and totally supreme if he so desires. It was after such a challenge to us and the universe that our chemist, Bullard, gathered strength to challenge his power. He stated his opinion sharply and to the point. I do not believe. What is that to me? Answered the professor. Simply this. You make a statement of certain powers that you have. I say that it is not true. Of what good is it to boast if you know that we think you a liar? Can you do these things? If you can, do them for us, and I, for one, will call you greater than God. Fail to do them, and I will brand you as a boasting liar. The professor looked at the chemist, and we, breathlessly, waited for the blow to fall. But he only laughed. You want a sign? A proof? I have thought of just such a thing, and I would have proposed it myself had one of you not asked for it. The thing must be visible to you all, something that I can demonstrate, a thing unheard of, a thing thought by all men to be impossible, and yet I will do it. Listen to me. You have all seen the jellyfish, called the bishop's mitre. When it is magnified 300 times under the microscope, it looks like a small balloon with a large opening at one end. It propels its way through the water by the flagellate movement of its cilia. The walls are translucent and transparent. At the top, there are two specialized groups of nerve cells, which we believe may serve as eyes. The opening at the bottom serves as a mouth. Smaller cells enter there and are absorbed. I describe it to refresh your memory, though all of you have seen it. I will secure one in a hanging drop under the microscope, and then we will attach the camera and cinema to it. We will project the picture on our screen. You will see the mitre move and live. You will observe the cilia move. While we have the actual specimen under observation, I will look at it through the microscope. Then I will demonstrate to you that I am not the idle boaster that you think I am. I will perform an experiment that will win for me the name of the greatest scientist that has ever lived. When he had told us the nature of it, we were too astonished to reply. It seemed evident that the man had become insane. He smiled at us as though we were children. 
After waiting for an answer and seeing that we had none to give, he began to prepare the apparatus for the experiment. Finally, all was to his satisfaction. After examining several drops of water from our specimen jar, he was able to imprison a bishop's mitre in the hanging drop under the microscope. He turned on the electricity, and we saw the jellyfish move upon the screen. The professor carefully adjusted the apparatus till the organism appeared with more than usual distinctness. We saw the little animal that he had so carefully described to us. We even saw the little projections, which we believed were rudimentary visual organs. Then Professor Queerling told the cinema operator what he wanted done. He was to take a picture starting from the time the professor disappeared down the brass tube of the microscope and continuing till he reappeared no matter what happened. He was to go on taking pictures. It is all well enough, said our master, for you children to see what is happening and to talk about it later. But who would believe you? We know that the camera cannot lie. That is why it is important to take a consecutive picture of what occurs. Otherwise, you might think that I had been able to hypnotize you. Now I will look down this tube. I see at the bottom in the hanging drop a transparent balloon. It is a pretty sight. Watch me carefully as I will myself to shrink. I will go on talking as long as I can, and you must listen carefully, because the smaller I am, the less audible will be my voice. Now I am 12 inches high. I am standing near the microscope. I become still smaller, and now I am only one inch tall and am standing on the eyepiece. No doubt you can barely hear me. Now I am smaller yet and am ready to will myself through the glass of the eyepiece. The room was silent. We looked, shivering at the microscope, and the professor was gone. The chemist staggered over to the instrument, looked into it, and silently staggered back to his seat. On the screen in front of us, the inhabitants of the drop of water lived and moved and had their being. Largest of all was the transparent jellyfish, which was moving restlessly as though seeking a way of escape. The only sound in the room was the whirr of the cinema and the harsh breathing of the chemist. Then on the screen came a new figure, and we were able to identify the professor swimming among the infusoria. Gaining his balance, he at last stood upright and waved his hand at us. It was easy to see his smile, that condescending smile that had so often driven us frantic. There was no doubt from the expression on his face that he was highly pleased with his performance. None of us dared look at his fellow. Not one of the audience thought for a second of taking his eyes off the silver screen. We were stunned, stupefied, and filled with a wild terror, all the more horrible because of its silence. The professor started to swim again and now approached the jellyfish. He tapped the crystal walls. Then, as though seized with a sudden impulse, he went to the bottom, jumped up through the mouth, and entered the translucent ball of protoplasm. He peered at us through the transparent walls. His arms made a series of peculiar movements, and once again he smiled at us. My God, exclaimed the artist. He is wigwagging to us in the army code. He said, I have done it, and now I will return to your world. And as though beginning to keep his promise, he started for the mouth of the jellyfish, and then, and then, the mouth closed. 
The professor circled the glass-like ball, seeking a way of exit. Once he waved at us in a peculiar manner, and then suddenly he sought the wall and, with arms and legs, tried to break through. On his face was now the look of ghastly despair. The things on top of the jellyfish began to glow. No doubt now that they were eyes and bright ones. Before us, the professor slowly disappeared into a globule of milky protoplasm. The jellyfish not only had made him a prisoner, but had actually dissolved and digested him. With a shriek, the artist went over to the wall and turned on the electric lights. Trembling, the chemist looked down the tube of the microscope and told us that there was nothing in the hanging drop save the jellyfish. Okay. <laughs> um... It's a silly story, right? Hmm. I mean, I can't do this. I can't wheel myself into a <laughs> various sizes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely fairy tale like. Um, but it's it's all about science. So, um, obviously, I submitted it to you for your consideration. Uh, we, we we both like David H. Keller's stuff. We know he's. Uh, He's got he's got some goods. What did you make of it when you first read it? I thought it was a story about hubris. Absolutely, and I wrote just wrote that word down. <laughs> I just wrote it down as you're finishing it. Yep, and absolutely is well, a story about that. I'll just remind anyone who's listening to us that we're about three thousand miles apart, so I couldn't actually see that. That's what you wrote, Jesse. Um, what I find interesting here. Uh, remember, as we both know, Keller was not only a psychiatrist, <clears throat> but he prided himself on being the first psychiatrist to actually write scientifically, by his viewpoint, informed um, stories for the pulp magazines. Mm -hmm. He thought of himself as a pioneering psychiatrist in these forms. This isn't just a story about hubris of the professor. If it were... I would agree that it's a silly story because, you know, if you can just do whatever you will, just will yourself to be bigger and pop out of the jellyfish yeah. and slip off the, the microscope slide. Right? So, I mean, the, the, the underlying argument being made here is not confirmed. So what is really going on is that the, the professor can do more than people believe that people can do. Yeah. But he is not right in believing that he can do anything. <laughs> and therefore, he may not be right in believing that what he can do, he can do simply because he believes in it. But if he were, then the reason he couldn't just get bigger and get out of the jellyfish's uh, mouth, gut, um, is that he didn't believe that he could. <laughs> Something had convinced him, had shaken his belief. And that's an interesting notion. This, the other part of hubris here, though, and this gets explored, I think, quite nicely but subtly, is the continuing hatred that the narrator mm. suggests everyone felt toward this fellow. It just killed them that he was the key to their success and not notice their success 
in gaining knowledge for the world, right. but their success in gaining fame as scientists. So there's two different kinds of hubris here. The, the professor has a hubris. I, I can, in fact, conquer the world and I can show the world what I have learned. Roll camera. Right. The students have a different kind of hubris. If we can just learn what this guy can teach us and stay on his good side, we'll open up opportunities for us to walk tall among men. Interestingly, the professor is four foot eleven and one hundred and ten pounds. <laughs> I mean, he is really a Napoleon complex kind mm, of guy. Mm -hmm. If one wanted to do it um, stereotypically. But I think when we look at his hubris and how it turns on him, um, it really is more reminiscent of Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that vibe. There's some um, uh, one th one little quibble I have with your um, your presented theory, and that's um, why he couldn't get out um, is because of his own, you know doubt <laughs> about his ability um uh, i love that the story uh, it's such a weird title for a story right like the jellyfish it's it doesn't even come into the story until quite late but we get this description of it from the professor and then we get the description of it from the narrator and they talk about what th the things that might be eyes right we actually have their eyes looking at his his uh his eyes looking through the telescope at the at the jellyfish's eyes and the dots that might be its eyes. Then he goes inside and they can't take their eyes off the screen. Uh, they realize that uh, he's in danger when the eyes of the jellyfish uh, become brighter. <laughs> and it he goes inside of the jellyfish to demonstrate its his abil his ability to show off and how amazing he is. He does this uh, uh, army or uh, air force wigwagging code right to to communicate right. information. Um, it's like a, a radio um, Morse code, except it's f for physically indicating to pilots who don't have radios, um, you know what they need to do or whatever. Um, and he's saying, I'm awesome, <laughs> shaking his arms back and forth. And what does this do? This wakes up the jellyfish who has a will of its own, which is to eat this thing. Right. And and so uh, it seemed to me like kind of the point of of the story is it's not that it's it's not that um, man is without limits. It's that everything is without limits in a certain sense or every living thing and there's there's much made about the soul at the beginning of the story you mean has limits well right, i mean the, the jellyfish does eat the professor it does and it does so because it wants food now it's not super smart right but it has eyes and seeing its food it lights up and says this is what i want to eat and the professor's well, wait wait what about my will Right, um, and then if we think about um, t maybe we should talk about that uh, alternative last paragraph. Um, I'll read it here. It's from uh, from the Library of America repackaging. Um, the next day, 
After a conference in which each of us said only part of what he thought, we decided to destroy the roll of film and sent word to the university that the professor had disappeared from the ship and our only explanation was that he had been drowned. Now, that's almost true, right? He definitely disappeared from the ship. Um, did he drown? That's one way of describing being digested. <laughs> um, right. So, uh, uh, once they destroy this film, the science, something that would revolutionize you know, our understanding of reality, um, that people could do such things, right, and would want to replicate it, they destroy the only evidence for it. This is something that the professor had wanted documented so that they wouldn't be able to say, oh, you just hypnotized us into thinking that happened. This would be documentary evidence. Instead, they destroy the only evidence and say, oh, he mysteriously died. Right? So we know that they hated him, but what we're uh, in either case, in either ending, what we're seeing is will confronted. The will of the professor is confronted by the jellyfish in the theory that the students didn't, or not the students, the, uh, all, the other professors, etc., hadn't, um, hadn't murdered him <laughs> or the jellyfish uh, killed him. In either case, it was the will of others that challenged the professor that this man who said, quote, if I desired, I could make myself a colossus and swallow the earth as if a child swallows a pill. Um, well, that uh, <laughs> kind of happens to him. He gets swallowed by a colossus of a jellyfish. Um, you see what I'm saying? There's like a there's this idea of of the will coming out, and then we with that narration and that alternative ending, we see like it's almost it's almost a um, it's all about the evil will of the of the students to defy you know scientific expansion or the evil will of the jellyfish to eat some protoplasmic professor. There's a I do understand what you're saying. Um, the image of the small professor going into the mouth of the relatively large um, called jellyfish, although I've never heard of anything that's a jellyfish that needs to be magnified 300 times no, no. to be visible. Um, and I haven't been able to find a jellyfish known as the, mitre's bish the no. bishop's mitre, although that makes us wonder about religion in this story absolutely um you know i could be greater than god um this it, it's like the the lion tamer who sticks his head into the lion's mouth yep i mean it's one thing to say okay i've tamed the lion and now you're going to just a little bit further and every now and then the lion wins so there's an interesting word to me in the in the beginning of the story all space is relative, the professor says. There is no such thing as size. The telescope and the microscope have produced a deadly leveling of great and small, far and near. The only little thing is sin. The only great thing is fear. A deadly leveling? I highlighted that myself. It's it's, so it's saying everything's equal, and it it it's it destroys. 
That's right. And it seems to me that if the professor really understood that such a leveling is deadly, he would not have been tempted into demonstrating his power to the, his students. He knows that it is wrong to misunderstand the, the relative sizes of things, even as he is saying that they, size is only relative. There is no such thing as size. Um, he, he knows it's wrong. He knows that I mean, he uses the word deadly. Yep. And I think, you know, that Keller has been accused of having terrific ideas, but not much knowing about writing. I don't think that's true in this story at all. I agree. Um, um, then in magnificent condescension, he would w talk in long, limpid language of the things that he had considered and the conclusions that he had deduced. My goodness. The, the rhythm of that sentence, the use of alliteration, this man can write. And I think that in talking about the deadly leveling, notice the alliteration in those mm -hmm. L's, it stands out. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I think that the narrator has allowed the professor to demonstrate that he has not a monotonic understanding of will, but in fact a more nuanced one. But he is so like a Napoleon complex. He is so desirous of demonstrating his mastery that he will show off for these other scientists, these young scientists. And they so dislike it that they hate him, although they wish that they could be like him. So there is a sort of subtlety that you can, in fact, present. Hubris, as I think most people normally understand it, is an unalloyed bad. But Keller, the psychiatrist, is giving us a way to look at it as perhaps more subtle than that. It's, it's bad, but it may also rest on what is right. It may drive us to do things that are heroic, mm. although it may drive us to die in the course of heroism. So when I take a look at the last paragraph, which you've just read to us, in the, the other version, which for all we know, Keller actually wrote to begin with, mm -hmm. and the editor of Weird Tales took it out, when it ends, you know, hanging, there was nothing in the hanging drop save the jellyfish. And then it says, the next day, we destroyed the roll and just said he had drowned. Did they destroy that so that they would not be looked upon <laughs> as, as fakers and, and as crazy? Or did they destroy it because they still were unable to grant this guy something powerful? Wow. What, uh, you know, mm. and then it shifts the story it to does. be a story about the hubris of ordinary people as opposed to the story without that last paragraph, which is just a story about the hubris of extraordinary people. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I was thinking one reason to destroy the film is because there was no film to begin with. They just straight up murdered him, <laughs> you know, stabbed him to death or whatever, and threw him off the ship because they hated him so much. And the problem with that theory is why does he tell us this story at all? <laughs> right? Why are we Thank reading you. this narrative? So I, I think I can set that fairly aside unless it's what you do uh, with an, a, a kind of like, it's a way of, an older person teasing a younger person by telling them a tall tale and then letting them decide whether it was true or not. 
and say, oh, well, I would show you the results, but we had to, we had to destroy them. There's another thing, another part of that, uh, ending paragraph that is very interesting to me. And it, this is why I, I like reading Keller is he's got these, he's got the psychology of people down and he puts it in the story. The next day after the conference in which each of us said only part of what he thought. What does that mean? Again, it means that things are more complex. Hubris isn't just bad. Mm -hmm. Self-promotion isn't just bad. And being part of a group doesn't mean you are simply open. Indeed. I think Keller is recognizing the complexity of human motivations. Um, It may be be that uh, with the film destroyed... uh, they can't see anymore what has just been narrated, but there's certainly always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.